Hey gang, welcome to Big Brother and the Hodling Company. It's a podcast about music and Web3 and trying to fend off Big Brother. I'm McKeegan Voice. Today I spoke with Rob Abelo, who is an artist manager, the founder of Roll Call Records, the former co-founder of the Web3 music discovery platform, Doper, and now author of the excellent newsletter, Where Music's Going. After managing some bands in college, Abelo, as a 23-year-old, approached one of the singers of the band Dispatch, which had just become the first independent band to headline Madison Square Garden, and convinced him backstage at MSG that he should become his manager. From there, Abelo would go on to start Roll Call Management and then Roll Call Records. And then, when he felt the urge to affect the industry at a more systemic level, he started Doper. It was a suite of music discovery modeling tools that folded at the end of last year due to conflicting founder perspectives about Web3. We chatted about all of this, as well as the power of on-chain identity, training AI music models on the notion of optimal surprise to elevate our music discovery, and his love for world-building artists like Fish. Hope you all enjoyed the conversation. Here we go. Hey, Rob. Great to have you here. Hey, Keegan. Good to be with you. Cool. Um, yeah, as always, I like to start at the beginning and just get a better sense of you and your story, you know, where you grew up and when your relationship with music started. All right. Start from the top. <laughs> so, yeah, I grew up the youngest of five kids in South Jersey, just across the bridge from Philly, which is actually where I recently during the pandemic just moved back to after the last 12 years or so in Los Angeles. Cool. Uh, you know, like so many others, just obsessed with music at a young age, really found so much of it through my older brother and oldest sister. I remember my oldest sister making my my first mix tape for me on cassette. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember having to like keep trying to hit rewind to finally get to the end of Black Hole Sun that just like kept going forever <laughs> into like the 20 choruses at the end. Yeah. Um, but really just like helping me fall in love with, with music through their taste. Um, and then through high school became like a really bad uh, drummer, really bad guitarist <laughs> uh, in, in bands with my friends. And our, our relationships were so built around music, you know, playing it together, the bands that we love together. Um, and I think something I, that I, you know, I found as like an attachment to music was like what could be built around it. You know, mm-hmm. the the community, the nostalgia, friendships, um, and was really fascinated by artists who built very rich worlds that like had layers you could peel back and get into, and at a certain point, almost took on a a life of their own you know, mm. beyond the band. And that really informed a lot of how I, my taste and, and what I wanted to do in music. Mm. Um, you know, when I went to school, I went to school at Rutgers University, um, I went to school for business. I was actually a little bit lost on exactly what I wanted to do. All my friends there were going into Wall Street or, you know, finance, things that didn't particularly interest me. Um, but a few of those friends from high school and in college, the, they were much better musicians. Hmm. And some of the bands they were in started doing pretty well, you know, and they were like, maybe we could do more with this. And they approached me about managing 
some of those bands. Um, and that was the first time it really clicked for me. It was like, you know, I, I love music. I kind of love how you build things around it. And, you know, I understand the business end, you know, maybe this could be something. Um, mm. So I really dove in. I, I just kind of like learned through trying, started interning at a few places. And the day I graduated from college, I had, you know, a job at a, a small booking agency uh, just right into that world. Cool. Amazing. I'm curious to to hear who some of the bands were that you were listening to that, you know, started to showcase, you know, some of the world building that was intriguing to you um, in high school. And then I'd love to hear, you know, about some of the bands that you started managing, you know, how did they do? Are they still, are they still around? You know, have I ever heard any of their music? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, one of the big ones and being, you know, uh, like an East Coaster, uh, both through my older brothers and sisters and all my friends, Fish was like a very, very big, <laughs> nice. big band, you know, big influence on me. Um, I'm actually surprised that they're not more often for people in the music industry or artists, like what, no matter what you care about their music, just being interested in what the, the relationships that they've been able to create with their fans and the okay. level of business they've been able to create. Um, actually, even in, in business school, did a bunch of reports on you know their kind of business with their fans and kind of like the lifetime value mm-hmm. of, of a fan for fish compared to like your your more standard arena selling artist. You know, mm-hmm. and I would look at you know fish coming through Philadelphia and playing three or four nights at you know, the, the 25,000 or 20,000 capacity arena. And out of those 20,000 seats, it's like 18, you know, let's say 22,000 people over the four nights, just slowly rotating (laughs) who's there, you know, and you're maximizing that. Whereas somebody else, like a big artist sells, you know, four nights in a row and it's like 20,000 distinct people each night. Right. And I was really fascinated by that, you know, how, why those relationships could be so different. Um, so they were really important to me. Uh, the layers of like inside jokes they have and, and things that are self-referential, they kind of create this element where like, it's, it's almost a little bit difficult to get in at first because you feel like you're not in the know, you feel like you're on the outside, but then when you do come in, it's like, you just want to know everything. You become obsessed. Um, and you have this special connection with other people who, mm-hmm. who are already in. So they were a really big influence for me. Um, a band that I was a fan of um, and actually ended up becoming like my, my first real management client. Well, one of the, the, the um, singers in the band became one of my first management clients was a band called Dispatch. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, another East Coast band. Like They were like Napster band. Like mm-hmm. they saw Napster were independent, like voluntarily put their music out there very quickly before like a lot of other people for free download through Napster. And they would play, I learned so much from, from their strategies. They would, um, they focused on like New England, Northeast high school kids and who were using Napster. And they would go to high schools and find the biggest fans and they would give them boxes of CDs and have the kids sell them in the hallways and like on spec. They would give them some money and they just kind of built through that way. And they would play Mm. shows at like private high schools and things like that. They just hyper targeted, Mm. you know, that certain type of person and kind of hand to hand combat. 
And when I was working at the the agency in my first year there in North Jersey, uh, one of the artists I was booking was friendly with one of the singers in Dispatch who um, had had also had a solo career. The Dispatch had kind of disbanded at that time, actually. And uh, Pete Francis, one of the two singers in the band, he had released the record on Hollywood Records, wasn't happy, bought it back, um, didn't have management at the time. Um, and he introduced me to, to Pete. I ended up, you know, I wanted to get into management. I thought it was like close, the closest thing you could possibly be to an artist I thought was management. You're the most closely aligned. I really wanted to get into management instead of being an agent. And uh, I spoke to Pete like one or two times. And then Dispatch was reuniting and playing three sold out shows in Madison Square Garden. They were the first independent band to headline hmm. MSG and they sold out three straight nights. It was like wild. Wow. And, um, I met him for the first time backstage at MSG. I was 23 years old and somehow convinced him that I should manage <laughs> well, his solo career. Well done. <laughs> yeah. Mistake on his end probably, but uh, <laughs> it was great. He was, he was a great guy. Him and his, uh, his wife was like very integral in his business. And the three of us kind of ran that ship for a few years before he ended up having to kind of go off the road from his solo career um, due to health reasons. But I learned so much through that because he had, for one, he had a lot of insight because he had been, you know, part of Dispatch and how they grew things. But I had the, the good fortune of some kind of assets there. You know, it was, there was some financial resources because of his success, but he also had a lot of diehard fans from Dispatch and, you know, it was easier for me to build a team. So it gave me an easy road to get into management and kind of see, you know, how, you know, the relationships with fans work and how we could build on top of it and how we can kind of use all the new tools. At that time, it was like Facebook mm -hmm. and MySpace was new. We were like building Facebook groups and inviting people in there and promoting that way. And it, mm -hmm. it was, I was very, very lucky to kind of have that start. Totally. Wow, that's amazing. I. <laughs> No, I hadn't thought about dispatch in a long time, but <laughs> but I remember I used to have a dispatch song as my MySpace song when I was in go. high school. <laughs> exactly, um, they were very much a high school band for sure. Totally, totally. Um, I would love to dive in a little bit more to your thoughts on, you know, like using Fish as an example, or like you know other bands like that, like like you know the Grateful Dead, or like you know take like you know like a Dave Matthews band or something that you know that have built these kind of cult followings. I remember going to a Dave Matthews show at Alpine Valley and talking to this guy and it was like his 83rd time seeing Dave Matthews. And he couldn't believe it was my first time ever. He like came and he showed me off to all of his friends and some of his friends had seen, you know, had seen Dave like 200 times. And, and that is really fascinating when you really think about that type of connection that an artist is able to cultivate, you know, with a fan base and with the community. And I'm curious, uh, you know, even before we talk about, you know, how Web3 is now starting, you know, to facilitate that, you know, in a new way, I'm, cu I'm curious if you can talk about, you know, through your studies, through your examination, through your experience, if, if you were able to, you know, to pinpoint any specific, any specific things these artists were doing um, that, that you can attribute to that type of behavior. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it, it, you know, talking about those specific 
types of bands, you know, bands that are kind of jammy, I guess, mm-hmm. right? You know, they, they have a huge benefit in that, you know, they're playing different songs and different versions of those songs mm. every single night, which, you know, for one, like that, not everyone can do that because there's a, there's a trade-off there. So you're trading away perfection. You're trading mm. away, you know, not just in the sound, but also in kind of like the visual aesthetic that times everything exactly with the sound. Um, but if you're someone who dives totally into that, and I think you you end up having an audience who like understands that and appreciates that and, and wants the mistakes, you know, <laughs> and the imperfections are almost like as important as anything else. Um, and you have this kind of serendipity and you create a lot more moments. You create the ability to go to multiple shows or feel like if you don't go to the next show, you might be missing out because that's the one where this big thing happens or the best performance of this song ever happens. So it kind of, those bands, if they are really successful, have the ability to occupy this kind of like music mind space that is somebody, it's not even just somebody's favorite band. It's almost like their only band. Like I have, you know, friends who are, I still love Fish, but I have, I have friends who, you know, are still obsessed and go to so many shows a year. It's 95% of what they listen to and think about. Mm. And that is so different than (laughs) a lot of other tastes. And I think something they tap into is just like layers of things, you know, so um, and, and not being afraid to be silly or be vulnerable um, and break down sometimes like that fourth wall mm-hmm. with fans. Um, it also, because of the way that's constructed, it allows fans to build things on top of it. Like even just really basic things, there's like, you know, message boards based on some of these artists or like little like super basic apps where you could enter every show you've been to, then it'll tell you like your stats, you know, mm-hmm. and like, on like Dean, this 17 times, or, you know, this song, you know, that you just saw hadn't been played in, 97 shows, you know, and it just, right. it kind of like automatically just creates so much layer on top. Um, but I, I also think there's lots of bands that are maybe not necessarily as the, the, the jammy or are playing different songs every night that just are really thoughtful about, you know, the brand and the visual aesthetic and the story, you know, even bands like Muse, hmm. you know, I think are really incredible they're kind of creating that feeling and, and the worlds around what they're doing. Um, and, and there's, there's countless other examples. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think it just takes a lot of thoughtfulness and effort. and something I used to say, like what, one of the bands that I still manage called rubble bucket. Oh who, yeah. And rubble bucket. Yeah. And they started off like a little jammy and they're, and they're, it's funny. Then they went totally not that. And now they're talking, we're, we're doing a little more like flexibility in the live show to have spontaneity after all these years. Um, when we first started working together, we'd talk about like, what does the, sm- the show smell like, right? Like wh- <laughs> what, what is every single, like when someone walks in, we want to think about every little element of the experience that they're taking in, you know, every mm-hmm. site. And that's not even just on stage, right? And if you start thinking, you know, to that level of how somebody is engaging with you and like understanding that it goes beyond like just the songs and the music to so much more, You know, I think you have the potential of creating, you know, not just people who like your music, but people who are like fans of the experience that you're putting on. Yeah, no, absolutely. 
I think that's a really good question. What is, you know, what does it smell like? And it really abstracts you into a new space to thinking about, you know, this entire experience. I mean, it's kind of, I, I feel like a jerk when I ask that question because it's almost impossible to answer, but it's, it, it kind of gets right? to the point. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, cool. Okay. So let's go back to, uh, you know, you're 23 years old. You, you've just, you, you've just convinced Pete Francis that, that you're going to be his manager. What happened after that? I know you talked about, you know, you were with him for a few years and then after, you know, you gained all of this experience, what, you know, what did you turn to next? So shortly after I started managing him, I actually moved uh, from uh, the East Coast to the West Coast uh, after, you know, I moved to San Diego because I told myself I didn't want to live in L.A., hmm. um, although I was commuting to L.A. three or four days a week, which was absolutely <laughs> painful. I imagine. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I actually ended up putting on – I did some live music stuff as well. I ended up putting on a concert series in San Diego called Bring on the Bright Lights – that went really well. It was, and it was a lot of artists were skipping San Diego. They would like, you know, end their tour in LA and fly out. Um, and San Diego was losing a lot of like rock or, you know, not electronic or not like kind of reggae type music. A lot of shows weren't coming there. A lot of the artists I loved. So I put on a series that was about once a month and a partner with a couple of the radio stations there and some of the cool blogs and, um, there was a venue called Fourth and B that was about 2,000 capacity. So the first show I ever put on was in a 2,000 capacity venue, and the band wow. was cut. The band was cut copy, and the support was wow. washed out. Oh, nice! And I was like, I hope this goes well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it sold out. I was like, you know, cut copy hadn't played in San Diego in years because they always skipped it. And I just put in like a really aggressive offer to get him in. Mm. Um, so that was amazing, you know, and, and and to kind of see everybody there like loving that show uh was was incredible the next show we did was mute math and we mm. did Por we did mute portugal math. the man kind of before was... they like really really exploded and i absolutely loved it um but then after about i think it was like seven eight months in san diego and commuting constantly to la i realized i had to move to la for my sanity so i, I moved up spent the next like 12 or so years there um I was managing. I, I stopped doing the live events and I focused on management. Um, I was I was managing like maybe four or five artists, and there was a couple of them that um, were putting out releases and we couldn't find good label partners for. And I, I should say, like back then, it was, it was almost more much more necessary to have some kind of label or like bigger distribution partner. Right. And this is about ten years ago, eleven years ago. It was just harder without, you know, those resources, um, mm. financial and distribution, physical distribution meant a little more as well. Um, so I, there was a couple artists that I thought were fantastic that I managed that, you know, we couldn't find a good partner. So I said, why don't we just put it out? The, the management company was Roll Call Entertainment. You know, why don't we create Roll Call Records and we'll just put these out ourselves. Um, so we did that with two releases that, went like fairly well, like nothing crazy. And I had been in touch with um, some people at Warner Music Group about signing some of my artists. And instead they came back and said, well, why don't you bring Roll Call Records into Warner with a thing called Independent Label Group, um, which was really fantastic at the time. It was uh, kind of like pre-label services existing at, mm -hmm. at dist distributors. And 
it was a home for uh, some cool indie labels and like a few artists that had left their major label deals that wanted to like be their own label, like Cake and Dropkick mm. Murphys were, were on there. And what we did is we pooled resources. So we had like three people on the radio team there. Um, we had a couple project managers, really great digital marketing. This guy, Tim, who's now like head of marketing at uh, Universal. Um, he was like running all the marketing for us head of PR, et cetera. And so we had distribution. I had this great, like they were my label staff that we shared amongst a few others. Um, and they gave us some small budgets to, to put things out into the world. And it was amazing because like one, that helped facilitate me signing some more artists. It helped get these things out in a much better way. And for someone like me who had like already been doing things so on my own and outside the system, I just mm -hmm. learned so much of what I was doing wrong, what I could do better. <laughs> Um, and it was great. So I did that for a few years. We started putting out, but it still didn't go crazy with putting out releases. Um, it was, you know, two to four albums a year, um, focusing on stuff that I just like absolutely loved. Some of the, some of that was stuff that I managed and we also put out, uh, the releases, a few of them were for artists that I didn't manage. I loved, I wished I could manage. Maybe the only way I could work with this band was to be their label. Hmm. Uh, the one really big downside uh, at first to doing it was that every artist I signed a deal with had to sign my little indie record deal. Hmm. And they also had to sign like a, just in case of emergency, um, any Warner wholly owned major label. So like Warner Atlantic, et cetera, at any time could break that glass and upstream them to a five record deal at predetermined like record deal that we had, I had to like essentially sign that major label deal with them without them actually getting anything. Wow. So they had to sign my deal. Plus this could happen at any time. Wow. So that it was, you know, some artists saw that as a benefit, but it was a hurdle I had to get across in signing people. Right. Um, strangely enough, going back to Portugal, the man, I forget what label they were at, but that was actually how they, they went from any label upstream through ILG to their major label deal through this same system. So I did, I was there for a few years and um, what ended up happening was after maybe the third year, the, this new thing of like label services became the thing. So uh, big distributors offering to the labels or artists there, these like label services you get a la carte or that were offered to you for to come be on their distributor and you'd pay like additional percentages. And that was great for, for some people. In some ways, what ended up happening was like my staff that was like, you know, for me and these few others, and they were like really part of our team, were now like offered up to anybody being distributed through ADA, which is Warner's you know, uh, distribution for, for other labels. And so like when the big Arctic monkeys record came out, which is exactly what happened and I needed my radio team, they were like, yeah, you know, hmm. we're on the Arctic monkeys thing. Like that's the priority. Hmm. Um, so it just became obvious very quickly. And there was, there's kind of a couple people there that I love that were like, yeah, like your deals coming up. If I were you, I'd probably go out of this system where you could be more of a focus. Hmm. Um, so that's what I did. I ended up leaving, Leaving the system there, um, I went over to InGrooves and we set up like a similar model. Like that was based on 
what I was looking for. They used me as the first label to kind of start their new version of an ILG there, which they did for a few years. Um, so yeah, and, and so I spent the last 10 years both managing artists and putting records out through through Roll Call. Um, some some were on both and some were on one. Hmm. Cool, yeah, no, thank you for sharing. So at what point in that journey did you you know, create Doper, like find the team that started to develop you know, this platform? So I want to kind of go back. I mean, so this is maybe a few years ago. Maybe it's just, you know, having been in any industry for a certain amount of years, you know, you get like an itch to do things different. Um, there was a few things that kind of hit me. You know, one was that, well, I really, really love working with individual artists. I would like to be working on some more systemic, you know, industry-wide things that affect, you know, every artist or every listener. Uh, that was one. Um, another was that I, for the first time ever, felt like, as specifically on the label side, that perhaps I was extractive. And mm. it was a terrible feeling. You know, it was, mm. how can I make sure that I'm legitimately adding value to the things I'm signing, especially actually the brand new artist, it's, it was almost easier for something that was already established to say, okay, hey, you know, this is what's going on. We can put a bunch more, you know, resources behind this. We, you know, have great, you know, relationships with teams. We can kind of like supercharge this pretty quickly. But for stuff that was brand new, it felt like no matter how much money you would kind of put behind something, not that we had tons mm -hmm. or what strategies you took, at the end of the day, it was just like throw it into the TikTok, well, not even at that time, throw it in the Spotify, you know, uh, slot machine and cross <laughs> your fingers. Yeah. For, for a while, we had like, you know, there was great relationships there. They like focused on what we were doing, but eventually it just felt like your control over that was limited. And I'm like, you know, it kind of goes to how so much A&R is done today by the majors. It's like, it's just like, why even have your own thought of what you think is great and try to develop it? It's like, just see what's, what happens to succeed at TikTok or Spotify and then be the first to jump on it, which is not really a game that like a small indie label can play. Um, and our, the way my label was set up, it wasn't like, we didn't really have much of like a, a specific brand for the label. We didn't like sit in our own niche or world and have like our own fans. It was artists could be very different sounding, um, which I think is a way you can, could still win as an indie labor collective. It's like you own this very specific niche. Um, so anyway, for the, for, so I just felt like, you know, how can I be like additive and, and on a more systemic level? Um, so I started getting more interested in, different ways through music tech or other platforms to help break artists or to help them be more creative or to help reward and incentivize being original, being creative. You know, how can you find more ways to connect with your fans in more authentic ways? Um, at the same time, um, a good friend of mine, Dave Rosen, one of my friends who has in bands with growing up hmm. um, had become a neuroscientist and had done some pretty groundbreaking research on how we form our music preferences, uh, what's happening in the patterns of sound with music when, you know, that makes us fall in love with it. Uh, him, him and his uh, co-researcher, Scott Miles. Mm -hmm. So 
they had asked me to come in and they were trying to take this research and bring it and create uh, creator tools. So, you know, how can we reverse engineer this in ways that are useful to artists to try to make better music or connect with people? It was very open-ended. Um, and, you know, so they had already done a little bit of work. I came in at first actually consulting for them for a period of time, but then they asked me to come in as a co-founder with them to help really take it off the ground. And we ended up doing it first was it, uh, the first move with it was focused on creator tools. So it was, you know, you're uploading or, you know, kind of creating in a doll, the music you're working on. And it could tell you based on these different versions of your song, you know, which one would maybe appeal to certain audiences mm. between different songs, mm. um, you know, which ones you should maybe pick for commercial success. Uh, it could also, what you're working on, like the kind of the longer term goal was like, as you're working, it would kind of lead you to help you build, you know, your song more successfully. Mm. Um, the cool thing about it was that like, um, while it was tied to, to, you know, commercial success at first, the, the real findings they have are that, you know, it's all about like surprising your audience, right, right. you know? So it was about being like subtly different and like pushing right. the boundaries in the right way. And that's very different for like avant-garde jazz as mainstream pop. Mm -hmm. um, but that was like the reason why I thought it was really useful because it was kind of using, we were building AI on top of the research in a way that like pushed boundaries, but like appropriately. Um, so I was really excited about that. We ended up actually pivoting into web three um for a variety of reasons but but one being that I was just so bullish on that space um because we ended up feeling that you know there's uh, so much music that was going to be released in web three as music nfts and otherwise mm -hmm. but it's really disparate it's coming from so many different places um it has you know it's not just songs like they could be songs or it could be you know, music not even attached to it. You know, there's so many kind mm -hmm. of different like use cases or utility measures um, that it's a very complex like storefront. And we wanted to kind of create a storefront that was parsable and easy to find what you're looking for. And underneath it to use this AI and this research to have a recommendation model that was fandom focused and lean in focused to find not just songs, but like artists and projects right. that you would fall in love with. Mm -hmm. um, so instead of a passive kind of, you know, recommendation system, like an active fandom based recommendation system. Cool. Uh, no, I mean, I love that idea. Um, and I'm curious, um, you know, first, just going back to the original, you know, idea, or I just, 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 you know, more generally talking, you know, about some of the AI modeling that you were doing. And I wonder if you could talk about that, you know, relative to, you know, to like, like, uh, um, take the Echonest and some of the work that they were doing, you know, before they were purchased by Spotify and, uh, you know, adding all these data points to songs and then, you know, creating intelligence around that, that you, you, you could use to build a recommendation engine. I'm curious how, you know, how you're approaching it differently. I mean, I love the idea of like, of, you know, building on surprise and like, you know, one of the big, I think one of the big issues with Spotify in the kind of lean back, 
you know, listening sessions that you get with like a Discover Weekly is that's, you know, it's keeping you within a bubble. It's keeping you, you know, within a feedback loop. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious how you were thinking about it in a different way that would perhaps expand that bubble a little bit more so that you could be, you could be surprised, but not like, you know, thrown way off course. If you, you know, typically listen, you know, to pop music, you're not going to get like, you know, the really avant-garde jazz or something like that, but something in between. Totally. So there's, there's, kind of two different angles to it like to, to be um to generalize so like the, the the one data point that we were using that we felt was different from the others because we actually use things like echo nest features mm. right like within our models um and a lot of other you know things that are you know available to other people or you know we're, we were doing a lot of feature extraction ourselves, but you know much of that wasn't getting different results than what other people would get but something we were looking at was like we were actually measuring surprise. We were measuring surprise across, you know, seven different features, harmony, melody, you know, rhythm, um, dynamics, et cetera. And, you know, putting that up against a lot of research in different kind of genres and also different types of like artist sizes, because it's all about your expectations. Um, what is types of surprise along each of those features that is appealing to hmm. people. And that said, varies wildly based on, you know, and I use genre, we use like this very 3D genre map, you know, it wasn't just like these like few buckets of genre. Um, so it was, you know, at a certain point, like when you're using AI, like you don't even totally know everything that's happening in there. It's so complex at that point. Hmm. Um, but it would come up with all these different constantly evolving measures of surprise because like every single day when new songs are released new levels of expectation are being set for for listeners so you know mm -hmm. what needs to what is surprising yesterday is not as surprising today right um so the models are constantly updating to that on like what's what we call optimal surprise right mm -hmm. so it's not that it's Surprise can kind of almost be misleading because it's not necessarily like the most surprising thing. It's in this right, optimal right. surprise right. range, which speaks to the avant-garde jazz pop mm -hmm. thing. So, so there's that side. So there's kind of like the, using some different data points and different inputs to understand like why people are interested in something. Um, another thing that we were really interested in is, you know, with the blockchain, uh, being able to understand what a, a listener is doing across different channels, but importantly, understanding the intensity of what they're doing. Hmm. So, you know, like on a Spotify, for example, you know, so much of what they're looking at to decide what to recommend to you next is actually a lot of times based on skip, you know, they, that's the strongest indicator for them. Like they don't want you skipping something. If you skip it, they're going to, you know, turn a lot of things down based on that artist, that song, that sound. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's great if the idea is like to not be offended, to like have a playlist going where like everything is is adequate enough plus. Right. Uh, right. It's not necessarily tuned to finding your favorite artist. That may happen, you know, it's not like they're anti that. It's just that the, right. the goals are a little bit different. Uh, for us, it was like, okay, you know, let's look at, we can see how much somebody spent on this artist, on this thing, on this type of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and there's all, you know, that's evolving constantly. So we're going to understand how people were actually, you know, participating. But on the input side, we felt like we could see 
a little bit more specific behavior. Um, and also you're pretty much only engaging with things that you really love that you want to collect or want to engage with. Right. You know, it's, it's less of a passive experience to begin with. Right. No, absolutely. So how far did you get in that journey toward, you know, toward building out the ecosystem that you had envisaged? So we got far on a couple points. Uh, one was kind of building, you know, bringing in, you know, music NFTs from a very, very wide amount of sources, mm -hmm. uh, cleaning up the data and, you know, using AI genre recognition, um, a lot of other things to kind of assort, like who is this artist and matching that to profiles and, you know, why would you be interested or how can we kind of make this parsable? Um, that was very well far along. Um, the kind of models uh, and the predictive nature of those models uh, for the surprise element was there, but on the recommendation element, we needed to have that user behavior. Uh, so we weren't there yet on, on having all of those inputs. And what was it about October last year, we ended up uh, kind of repivoting or there's a, a decision to repivot outside of web three uh, for reasons, you know, from, from co-founder difference of opinion, that is totally valid. But at that point, I was so far down the Web3 rabbit hole that you know I decided to stop working with Doper and continue working in Web3 in kind of related areas. Hmm. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what some of those concerns were that they had, you know, about Web3? Um, I don't know if I can you know, necessarily voice all of it or, or, or if I'd, you know, they would want me to, but, you know, I think it's, you know, wanting to see that research that is someone's life's work, you know, maybe put to a different use. Um, and maybe if you're not as far down the web three rabbit hole, <laughs> you know, you can, and, and, and as the turn for, you know, just using Web3 as a bucket for like, you know, a, more into a bear market. Mm -hmm. um, I think maybe it became less attractive if you weren't like there for the more like foundational reasons of why Web3 is really beneficial. Right. Um, and sometimes you kind of want to run something differently and your vision is, is not the same. So I think that Scott, you know, will be continuing. It, it may not be called doper actually, but coming back with something that's very, very useful based on this technology later this year. Oh, cool. And then, yeah, I mean, conversely, I'd love to hear about the, you know, the elements, the use cases, you know, the things that you were seeing that made you so excited that, you know, had, had already pulled you so far down the web three rabbit hole that, that you wanted to stay there. Yeah. I mean, so much of it is, is definitely theoretical, which is the thing we're all grappling with. <laughs> um, I was so, so, so skeptical you know, very early on. Um, I think it kind of goes back to me for like thinking of bands like Fish and, and kind of mm -hmm. going deeper and understanding or just going back to those examples of, you know, there's a thing called Fantasy Torp with a PH, you know, mm -hmm. where you're, you have your message board and everyone's talking about all the shows they've been to and those things are being tracked. You know, what if that was actually all connected in some real way where like every time you bought a ticket, you know, it you had this like identity of your relationship to this band that showed all that, you know, provably 
all of the shows you went to and everything related to that and you know the band could reward you for that or understand you for that or so much could be layered on top but then you take that outside of like live and in terms of how else are you participating with them or listening to this artist um to me it was like wow that's i just look at like the fan club like the hand-to-hand combat like marketing or like artist to fan direct relationship this just makes so many it's like the the lego blocks that allow so many more things to become possible Um, as i kept kind of going deeper i think like one of the things i struggle with is just right now there's there feels like there's not enough incentives or rewards for artists to like kind of build organically and like very originally and not be just trying to like shoot another thing at like the algorithmic you know slot machine Mm-hmm. And to just like stick true to who they are and carve out something really unique in a world because there's just not enough. It's not that that can't work and it, that clearly does still work in some ways. Um, but the infrastructure isn't set up to right. benefit that. Um, and I think on the fan side, you know, everything is set up. So it's so convenient to right. listen or experience in certain ways, me included, that it's like so easy you know, every like, you know, small choice or decision is that like, it's faster to get music on that's acceptable to me in like one second because just immediately at the top of my feed. But like, ultimately that's not helping me get closer like and find artists that I love. Um, I don't think that's like as pressing of a thing for for, for fans to like consciously think of, but I do think that exists. Totally. Um, and I think that Web3 potentially has so many ways where it can reorganize that incentive system and that reward system. And I, I, I do think we're already seeing that in small ways with, with the success stories that are happening in Web3 and that are happening with such a small amount of fans or collectors mm-hmm. existing there mm-hmm. that is really interesting. Um, and I think that the artists that are building in that world, they're just building in a totally different system. Like the way they're creating is to like super serve super interested people it's about building a really cool world it's about being really inventive it's about layering like visuals and 3d art what can i do to make you know everything interconnected Hmm. and i i find that fascinating i find that incredible that there is that reward system there and i think there's also possibly reward systems there for the fans as well i don't know if it's all perfected um I'm not necessarily a huge believer in like you want to get or buy something because you could sell it for more later. Yeah. Um, I think in some ways that's like a perverse way of looking at the artist fan relationship, but I Mm -hmm. do think there's still other ways there, like more of the proof of fandom. Um, And like you look at like behind me, I have, you know, these records on my wall. These are records that I put out or from artists I've managed in the label, but I'm showing them off in some way, you know, or like when I was younger and I was in like high school, you'd wear like a band shirt. And, um, the reality is like, we were going to be more digital. We were going to be living more in the metaverse, whatever you want that to be. That could be kids in Roblox. Right. And the more ways we can like provably show what we're into, the culture we're into, I think there, that's where there's something too on the fan side. What, one of the ways where I think there's an incentive to get deeper with the artists you care about. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And, and I think, you know, to what you were alluding to the, uh, you know, the potential of on-chain identity and being able to rally around that is really huge. And, you know, I share your concerns or, or at least in some of the hesitations surrounding the, at times, you know, over-financialization of, of things like music NFTs, just because, you know, crypto, you know, at the beginning was, was inherently financialized. And, and I think it'd be really interesting I, I, to see how these use cases evolve once it, it becomes a little less that, hopefully it does, and, and more about that, you know, you know, that identity, like, you know, what are the records hanging behind your wall? Um, and how can we build around that? Like that's that's what can be really interesting, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the over financialization thing is is interesting because for a minute there, I was like, you know, we, we just need the over financialized. Like it, music has been so under financialized, right? I mean, it's just like we part. never think about it, right? It's like when right. was the last you never think about how much you're spending on a song? Like that's mm -hmm. non-existent. So like you know, people should be thinking about this as an right. exchange, but it, it, I think it probably goes too far <laughs> in the mm -hmm. other direction. Yeah. You know, then there's just this other kind of less sexy, you know, element of like the administrative building blocks, you know, of performing rights and royalties and splits that, you know, make that easier, faster, more transparent when done mm -hmm. right. right. Um, and actually in doing so potentially enable more creativity um i think i highlighted before like um, a black dave release where he included something like 95 or i'm getting the number wrong but like collaborators on one music nft release where like every time it was sold like everyone got these splits and some of those right. people were previous supporters of his but some of those were like the guy who did the video editing mm -hmm. you know all, all these others and um you know if somebody came to me on the label and was like, hey, we have this song and we need 95 people <laughs> to get routed the royalties. I'd be like, just forget it. Yeah. You know, like, like just don't release it. <laughs> release yeah. it some other way. Like, it's just so complicated and difficult. And especially if it was for this like one-off thing within a bigger deal. I, I just, so, you know, it's administratively a lot, unlocks a lot. I think because of that creativity, creatively, mm -hmm. I think there's things you can, you can do that you maybe were, were kind of unavailable previously. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm curious to get your thoughts, uh, on, on that specifically, you know, coming from more of the traditional label world, uh, what it's going to look like as these two things clash, you know, this, you know, still really powerful world of the major labels and trying to you know, to bring a legacy system into this world of Web3 that's just kind of throwing a wrench into everything. It's it's creating a new format. It's reimagining, you know, things like splits and royalties themselves. And, you, you know, you can fractionalize them to like, you know, kind of infinitely in ways that, you know, as you're just saying, where like, you, you know, just wouldn't work, you know, in the old, in the old system. And, you know, at some point there's going to be either like two systems or there's going to be some kind of compromise, you know, in the middle. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on where, if that's going to happen, how that's going to happen, what's that going to look like? Yeah, Web3, one of the big challenges is because it's high-minded and theoretical, or at least for me, like what's possible. And it requires, 
you know, this like big buy-in for like everybody to kind of be bought in almost to some degree to like achieve its full potential, which right, is just right. unrealistic. And then also like, how do you get from point A to B? It's like, how, you know, how did the I evolve kind of, you know, like it's not useful until it's done. And it's a really big challenge that is I'm uncertain about. You know, I, I think that a lot of the foundational things of Web3 are just, you know, upend a lot of the power structure within music. So, you know, they're unappealing. And, mm -hmm. you know, the black box nature of a lot of data and royalties within, you know, the, the you know, major label end of music is, is a feature, not a bug. Mm -hmm. So, right. you know, maybe that changes at some point. Um, it, it probably changes if there's such a groundswell from the bottom up. And a hand is forced, mm -hmm. but I could always be wrong. There are some really cool, you know, part, there's a company called Revelator who does um, a lot of, uh, they, they do distribution, but like they work with a lot of distributors as well to kind of give them their analytics and deliver music. And um, they're building some interesting Web3 components. So it's like, I'm interested in that, like building a side-by-side -side to something that already exists where you're already right. getting all of your music out into the real world from so many different labels and organizations. But now also you have the ability to kind of like distribute in Web3 and then to like build in the distribution accounting, you know, on an opt-in system that you can either get it this way or you can get it that way. You know, right. I think there's a lot of potential in solutions like that to help us get there. Yeah. Absolutely, I agree. Um, cool. So coming back to you, uh, and you know, going back to last October when when you said, you know, or when you decided, you know, to leave Doper, you know, what was your game plan at that time, and what what have you been up to since then? Yeah. So it's been a crazy few months. I had a, a baby, so I took a, a little bit of time off. Um, my plan at that point was, you know, so I had started. For, for one, you know, by being kind of like an aggregator of sorts, uh, I was looking at every single platform and use case that were out there to inform myself, but also to kind of put that out into the world. And I felt like I was becoming, you know, rather educated in the space. Um, I, I brought a, a somewhat unique viewpoint because I'm from like traditional music industry, but it was always like going my own way, indie label, like management of artists that are like going their own way and like fighting in the trenches and really knowing what it's like for like artists to try to build tribes and like the bullshit detector that fans have, you know, like what, what's really going to fly and what's not. Um, mm -hmm. And kind of sort of voicing my opinion about it and a lot on Twitter and and. Mm -hmm. With a, with a small group of people that resonated. Um, so I'd had a lot of people asking me to advise or give opinions. And so um, I thought I would go that route and, and do consulting and advising. Um, so I put that message out, I think, in December. And now I have some great projects I'm working on in that capacity. Um, but there's, there's another area, and I'm actually launching it, I think, this week, um, a thing called Where Music's Going, which... To start is is a newsletter that is focusing on um, Web three AI and other new tools and strategies, you know, for building more connected music audiences in the future. Um, and that's giving context on kind of you know where we're going in in, in 
thinking intentionally about how we build these things, but then also understanding how you can engage with them and what's new, uh, you know, and not, you know, uh, making sure you're aware of all the things that are coming online every single day and all those mm. spaces that kind of change the pli- the the space that we're living in as an artist or a platform or a builder. Um, I plan to kind of keep building and layering on top of that to um, have more resources for everybody building in this space, uh, trying to figure out what what is the best way I can kind of be helpful and give context to and try to be very like goal driven in what I deliver there. So you know, I've talked a lot about that, but it's incentivizing fandom, you know, and increasing the value of music uh, are really like the two leading things I try to have underpinning whatever I'm building. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, cool. I'm excited to see that grow and evolve. Cool. I just have one more question for you at this point, and it's a little unrelated. And uh, yeah, I ask everybody this one, put you on the spot a little bit. You're going to Desert Island. You get to bring three albums with you. What are they? <laughs> All right. Uh, one is actually a live record, which is My Morning Jacket Okanokus, double record. Nice. Nice. Uh, that I would probably just listen to over and over and over again. Um, wow, I got two others. I, I got to pick my Radiohead record. Uh, nice. Which one are you going to pick? <laughs> yeah. Pro- I mean, probably maybe in Rainbows. Hmm. Um, hmm. And then I wonder if I should have something that's like a little more upbeat if I should do... Uh, blanking on the name of the album which is bad <laughs> on my hot ship album that i want mm. i can think of the album cover i'm gonna have to get back to one with motion sickness on it i can't remember but i think those are my three cool yeah that's a good three um i would have, I would have to say in rainbow i should have prepped for this no <laughs> I, I mean the idea is to put you on the spot it's you know it's an impossible question it's kind of whatever you know is just happens to be floating in your brain in the moment so I think it's a good trio of albums. Um, yeah, cool, Rob. Thanks so much for being here. And you know, where's the best place for people listening to you know to get involved or to follow your work? On Twitter at Abelo Rob um, or at WhereMusicsGoing.com, and they can kind of subscribe to the newsletter. That depending on when this podcast comes out, is <laughs> it's already out or coming soon. Cool, amazing. Uh, yeah, cool. Thanks, you know, so much for being here for your time, you know, wishing you all the best as, as you continue, you know, to chart where, you know, where music's going. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Take care, man. All right. That's it for this episode of Big Brother and the Hodling Company. I'm your host, McKeegan Voice, and you can keep up with me and all the latest Web3 music trends on Twitter at McKeegan. That's M-A-C-E-A-G-O-N. This show is a production of Decentral Media. And you can visit us at decentral.io and remember, only you can prevent and fend off. Big Brother. <laughs>